If you're looking for a roadmap to financial health and smart investing, remember, money meets at the intersection of Mulholland and Cooperstock. After your family and your health, your money, your investments should be number three on your life top 10 list. I am Mark Cooperstock, and along with my partner, Stephen Mulholland, a CFA charter holder and CFP, are the principals of Mulholland and Cooperstock Asset Management. Our firm is a registered investment advisor with offices in San Diego and Summerlin, Nevada, with only one goal in mind, to provide meaningful, thoughtful, and tax-efficient advice. We provide investment and generational wealth management guidance while keeping a sharp eye on the economy and the markets. So come along, join us on this journey as we look to help you navigate the superhighway of financial news and global markets amidst the daily traffic of forecasts, speculators, and prognostications. You have arrived. Remember, money meets at the intersection of Mulholland and Cooperstock. Along with engineer Griff in the booth, as he prepares to matriculate and conquer Washington University in St. Louis and become a bear. By the way, did you know that Wash U was formerly known as the Pikers? Let's welcome my partner, Stephen Mulholland. Stephen, where will we go today? Uh, thanks for the intro, Mark. We are talking. Hey, uh, how you doing, Griff? I'm good. I'm good. Happy to be here. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. It's before noon. So everybody thank Griff for uh, making <laughs> it on time to the podcast, getting up early. Thanks, Griff. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, where we're going today, Mark, we're talking expected returns uh, from here for the next decade, uh, specifically looking at U.S. three-month treasury bills and the S&P 500 representing the U.S. stock market. So the period that we were just in for 15 years was incredibly strange. And the period we're in today is also incredibly anomalous. So all we're going to do today, we're going to keep it really simple. Mark Griff and our uh, growing audience, we're going to keep it really simple. We're going to look at how our expected returns for three-month treasury bills and the S&P 500 have changed. This is going to be a bit of a picture book, like a time-lapse expected returns from 2008 to 2023. Hopefully everyone listening uh, is doing so by watching the accompanying video. Um, but we'll we'll do our best for audio-only listeners to also follow along. So the graph's very simple. Uh, we're going to have the same graph shown 15 ways. We're going to show the expected three-month treasury bill return. The y-axis goes from zero to 16%. Uh, and then the uh, there's going to be two data points, two data series, three-month treasury bills and the S&P 500. So setting, we're going to spend a little more time on the first graph. Then we're going to flip through like a picture book. Um, uh, uh, as we as we go through time, uh, Mark, we're starting in 2008. Why are we starting in 2008? 2008 marked really the beginning, the height, the the <laughs> the onslaught of the financial crisis. Don't, perfect. And Mark, you've been in the bond business for a long time. Uh, just to to reinforce it for Griff or people who are younger. Um, how strange was it in response to the great financial crisis that the federal funds rate went to zero? Yeah, it was uh, it was it was eye opening. It was awakening. Um, you know, the thought by the by the government and, and the Fed was to make money as cheap as possible and with zero percent interest rates. You can't get much cheaper than that. Uh, and the thought being that if money was cheap and available, then you know businesses, individuals would borrow. 
to spend money uh, to help, you know, production, purchasing. Businesses would borrow money at zero or near zero interest rates and would use that money to hire, expand, build, develop, et cetera. So it was, it was, a, it was, it was supposed to be stimulative um, in nature. Right. And um, uh, perfect. And it was, it was an experiment. It was the first time in American history this had been tried in Japan. Uh, the current central banker uh, at the time who instigated this policy, Ben Bernanke, spent much of his academic career studying Japan. Uh, but this was the first time interest rates had been taken to zero in the United States of America. And it was an emergency measure that was supposed to be temporary, right? Supposed so, to be. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, it was supposed to be, it's supposed to be temporary. So the first graph expected returns 2008. Griff, uh, the three month treasury bills, uh, that looks pretty close to zero, right? For expected yeah. return. Right. Yeah. It, and Griff, this was a time, it's hard to go back. Um, it, it's hard to uh, go back and recreate 2008 if you didn't live through it. But have you seen the movie, The Big Short? I actually haven't. I know you keep reminding me that I said watch it. I keep I keep needing to. <laughs> yeah, you and all our young listeners in particular should watch it because uh, it's hard to uh, imagine just how emotional that time was for everybody. Um, it was so that movie does a really nice job based on the Michael Lewis's book of encapsulating that era. But we just talked about a crisis and uh, uh, banks were failing. Uh, Mark mentioned before we started recording today, First Republic was taken over by JP Morgan rather seamlessly. But in 2008, uh, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers were failing. Um, the, the subprime mortgage uh, backed bonds, which on my CFA exam, we learned why they were an incredible innovation. Uh, suddenly we realized uh, as Warren Buffett likes to call them, they were actually uh, weapons of mass destruction. Um, the uh, credit default swaps, mortgage-backed bonds. There, there was a lot of uh, stuff going on. We have uh, listeners of all ages, so I'll try to avoid curse words. But in 2008, there were a lot of grown people, very stressed, very worried. It was a tumultuous time. And Griff, the S&P 500, what do you see for the expected returns for the S&P 500 in 2008? Doing very well. Right, at about 15, almost 16%. Yeah, yeah. So this was a time everybody was scared. So stocks were actually priced very cheaply and poised for very high expected returns, right? So, um, and generally it's a good rule of thumb. When people are scared, it's a good time to buy stocks. And when people are very excited, it's been a less good time to buy stocks. But we're starting 2008, three month treasury bills, uh, expected returns were zero. Uh, and S&P 500 expected returns were almost 16%. So all we're going to do is we're going to hold the same. We're going to show the same two data points. We're just going to walk forward in time. Oh, and I should mention very importantly, the expected returns for the S&P 500. So if you bought stocks uh, on December 31st, 2008, for the next 10 years, you could expect to generate almost 16% a year annualized returns. That estimate comes from the uh, Schiller's uh, CAPE model, the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio. So this is using the regression coefficient from that model, uh, forecasting returns for the next decade. The R squared of this model in modern history is uh, somewhere around 0.85 or higher, uh, depending on the exact time period. Um, so uh, what that means, 
and, and if we look forward from 2008 to 2018, the actual ex post return ended up being rather close to this. So you could buy the S&P 500 on 1231 2008, and you were doubling your money pretty much every four years, which is incredible, higher than average, which usually it takes uh, seven years to do. Okay, so now we're uh, any questions from Griff or any comments from Mark before we begin our time lapse journey? Steve, maybe you want to give just a two or three sentence description of what R squared is for those listening, watching who don't know what it is. Perfect, Mark. R squared just means predictive power. So uh, uh, an R squared of say 0.85 means its predictive accuracy is about 85% accurate. So if if the model predicts 15 or 16, we wouldn't expect it to be exactly 15 or 16, but we'd expect it to be uh, awfully close. So R squared is a stand-in for predictive power. Is that uh, does that work, Mark? Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, that, okay. was, that was my question. So perfect. All right. All right. Everyone, good. Good. Okay. So we're about to go on our time lapse journey. Um, and remember, we're going to freeze the y-axis from zero percent to sixteen percent, um, just so to to really hit home the changes. And we're going to go from 1231-2008 to 1231-2009. Spoiler, the emergency measures of 2008 were still in place in 2009. The stock market bottomed the S&P 500 eerily at 666 um, in uh, March of 2009, I believe. And Griff, the expected returns from the S&P fell from almost 16% to about what? About 12%. And what's the historical average S&P 500 expect uh, the historical returns of the stock market? Isn't it around 10%? Correct. So we've come down from 16%, but we're still at 12%. Still pretty great, right? Yeah, not too bad. Yeah. And what you, what you see happening is the market got so cheap, it brought back more people. They said, you know what? I'm still scared. The world's going to end tomorrow. The America's going to cease to exist. Ocu a young young Sam Bankman Freed was protesting at Occupy Wall Street about this time. Uh, there were legitimate fears about the viability of capitalism in America, yet people were coming back into the market because the stock market was so cheap. We go to 2010. Mark, did the Fed end their zero interest rate policy yet? Amazingly, no. Exactly. So we're still at zero for three with Treasury bills. The S&P didn't change that much. Expected returns, 11%. 2011, similar story. 2012, similar story. 2013, three-month treasury bills are still zero, five years after we began uh, the grand experiment of zero interest rate policy. The S&P's expected return is now below average. It's about 9%. Still good, though. Fast forward to 2014. 15, 16, Gradually, now here we are in 2017. Griff, what has changed in this graph? Well, the S&P 500 is not, not looking too good. Exactly. And, and the three-month treasury bills, do you finally see some blue color? Yeah, yeah, finally. So, perfect. So what we have here, we are now, the, remember, interest rates were taken to zero in 2008. So now, almost a decade later, finally, the Fed has decided we're going to try to raise interest rates off zero. Maybe the crisis a decade later is over or at least abated. And the market was so hot, housing and stocks, that the S&P's expected return is all the way down to 4%. 2017, 
Then we come to 2018. Hold what on, happened? Steve, Steve, hold on one second before we jump to 2018. And by the way, by 2017, there was already a lot of discussion and predictions on, on, on Wall Street from the economists, from the pundits, that the economy at some point was going to have to pay for this free money, right? That it was going to be that, that inflation, you know, was going to be something that was inevitable. So there was already a lot of discussion six, seven years ago, eight years ago, that even after five or six years of free money, you know, it was going to have a, an inflationary effect on our economy. So I just wanted to add that at this point. Go ahead. Very true. And one of the largest uh, 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 advocates for that theory and to be cautious was the uh, was Thomas Honeg, Fed governor from the Kansas City Federal Reserve, which Mark, I believe you had a good experience at the Kansas City Federal Reserve with your family. Yeah, we were there in February. It's an amazing place. If you're in Kansas City, they, they have a fantastic museum there. You actually can see the warehouse full of cash. Um, literally, there's billions or trillions of dollars all being moved around by robots. Amazing. And did you no take some no camera? No cameras allowed, by the way. No cameras. <laughs> take a picture. You end up in. You'll end up in federal prison. <laughs> good tip. So, um, and, and excellent uh, addition. Uh, the, so then we go to 2018, kind of a continuation from 2017, the Fed raised rates a little more, three month treasury bills are gonna be very closely related to the federal funds overnight rate. And all of a sudden the S&P 500 returns got a little higher. Why? Because the stock market fell, peak to trough 20% because there is a relationship between the Fed funds rate, three-month treasury bills, 10-year bonds, and the S&P 500. Mark, if you buy a treasury bond and hold it to maturity, what is your risk? What is the, what's your volatility? What's your risk like? You hold, if you hold it to maturity, there's zero risk. Exactly. So it makes rational sense. To, Griff, it makes sense. If you can have an asset with no risk that pays you something, it makes sense the S&P, which is risky, should pay you more than that, right? Yeah, definitely. Perfect. That, that's, it's a bit of a, uh, it's a good segue and a bit of a setup to the world we're going to be entering. Uh, but at this point, what you can see is the S&P 500 is getting cheaper because the market rationally was raising expected returns by lowering prices because short-term rates, the risk-free rate, was rising. So we get to 2019. Wait a minute, what happened? Well, the Fed actually started lowering rates from 2018 to 2019 because the market went down 20% and credit spreads, the amount that below grade investment companies, think companies funded by private equity, which is Chair, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell made his fortune in private equity. It's a world he knows very well. Credit spreads blew out. All of a sudden it looked like the Fed's attempt to raise interest rates was going to hurt the markets and then the economy. There was also a president at the time who was very upset, as all presidents are, when the Fed was raising interest rates to try to cool the economy. And Mark mentioned that uh, there were uh, market commentators, economists, Thomas, Thomas Honig, who were warning about inflation but the way the Federal Reserve looks at inflation, only goods. The Federal Reserve used to look at inflation in asset prices and goods. Uh, in the modern era, they've ignored asset price inflation, even thinking it can be good and productive, like when home and stock prices go up. 
and they've only been focusing on goods inflation. At this time in 2019, there was no obvious goods inflation the way the Fed looked at inflation. So they actually cut rates again. And you can see the three-month Treasury bill rate went down and that benefited stocks uh, as the prices rose in stocks and the expected return came down. 2020, uh, we're going to mention COVID as briefly as possible on this podcast. I'm sure we'd all like to pretend it never happened or forget about it. Um, 2020, when COVID happened, the market initially crashed. All of a sudden, 12 years after the first time in American history where we had zero interest rates, we were back to zero. Three-month treasury bills are back to zero. And Griff, what does it look like the S&P 500 was priced to return? Around 3%. Yeah, that's pretty that's pretty pathetic, right, Griff? Yeah, yeah. Not okay, too not too good. And and as Mark foreshadowed before, this is right about when inflation started to rear its ugly head. Um, 2021. On, on, can you guys see a blue bar on this graph anywhere? Barely. Yeah. So basically, there were no returns at the end of 2021. If you bought assets here, this is when Silicon Valley Bank was loading up their balance sheet with risky assets. Uh, you know, people were desperate to try to get return because expected returns were so poor. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, 2022 looks quite different. And Mark, since you foreshadowed this before, um, why don't you take us through uh, what was going on with the Fed funds rate and three-month Treasury bills by the end of 2022? Yeah, well, finally, the beginning of 2022, the the, the and the Fed had been kind of warning, predicting, um, foretelling that, you know, it was time to raise interest rates to get their handle on inflation. You know, they they said it was to prevent inflation. Inflation was already, you know, the, the barn door was already open. Inflation was already out and running. So to try to get a handle on it, um, they started raising rates. And, you know, we, we now are in a, a period where on this chart in the 2022, the three-month T-bill was, uh, looks like about four and a quarter or so. Today, that rate is a little over 5%, 5.05%. So you can see the effect it has. Look, you know, you can get 5% today, 5.5% today. Um, you know, many people are saying, let's take it. It's guaranteed, right? You can only, the only place you can use the word guaranteed is when talking about US Treasury bills, bonds, or notes, because they are backed by the full faith and credit of the United States Treasury. Uh, no other. No other holding or investment is allowed to use that name legitimately. Or that and term. Ladies and gentlemen, that was our chief compliance officer using the word guaranteed. <laughs> That's so, true, but, but I, gave, I defined why. <laughs> Very well. I'm no, no, and and that's how that's how guaranteed it is. Um, so, uh, Mark, that, that that's perfect, and and that takes us through when we're recording this on May first, uh, two thousand twenty-three. As you mentioned, the T-bill rate is up over 5% and the expected return grip for the stock market is barely higher at 6%. And we went through quite a journey. I'm gonna flip through this one more time a bit, a bit faster, but we went through quite a journey of starting with the financial crisis, the, uh, the three month treasury bills being zero, S&P 500 returns being near 16%. We went through quite a journey where the S&P 500 returns came down. The Fed tried to raise interest rates, couldn't get away with it. And then inflation came back and they, their hand was forced. And we started in an incredibly anomalous time 
and we're ending in an incredibly anomalous time that the treasury bills, as Mark said, that you can get a guaranteed five and a quarter from the government uh, with no risk and really very little volatility, or you can buy the S&P 500 with 20% historical standard deviation and uh, a 6% expected return. My, my, this is a bit of a loaded question. Uh, obviously, there are some some right answers, uh, but um, Griff, why in this moment would an investor choose the S&P 500 over the three-month Treasury bills? Um, I guess there's just more of an upside, like potentially, because with the three-month Treasury, with the three-month Treasury bill, like it's it's very fixed. Like you, you know what you're going to get, which is like nice because there's less risk, but at the same time, there's less of an upside, maybe. Seven, and that's about zero point seven five, right? So, um, would you? So, would you take that extra volatility for that zero point seven five percent? Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe because like I'm young, I have a lot of time to see like how, <laughs> how it all pans out. But I don't know. Maybe if I was like speaking from my parents' perspective, I'd probably choose the the safer route. You know? Yeah. No, th- those are great answers. Those are great answers. And and Mark. As a bond investor, and you're used to thinking about the whole yield curve, um, why, why do you think some investors? Why would it? Why would it? Why could an investor rationally choose to own the S and P 500 here? Well, I think that there are some people who are wired to be equity investors, right? And but I think what what Steve, what we're seeing in our firm with our clients, the conversations we're having. Um, is that everybody today is really happy having a diversified portfolio or a mixture of the bonds. And we're not saying don't have any equity exposure, but be careful. So some people are wired where they're just, you know, they're going to live and die by it. Um, But we're finding by and large, um, many, many, many investors are really happy with that five, five and a quarter percent. Um, And and, uh, let me add one other thing about the the U.S. Treasuries and, and, and some other uh, specific uh, U.S. government agency issues is that they're state income tax free. So you pay federal income tax, but you don't pay state income tax. So that gives that effective return if you have a portfolio of even a, a little bit more of a kicker. Um, so that's that's a nice plus if you live in a state with with any state income tax or high income tax rate. No, so those those are also a great answers. And, and the one the 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 one additional thing I would add is. Um, so these are S&P 500 expected returns from 2023 through 2032, right? So the, I think the, not saying it's right or wrong, but the rational argument to still buy stocks here, and especially for your case, Griff, if you're young and have a long time horizon, is that that T-bill rate is for the next three months, right? That, that goes through, you know, covers June, July, August. We don't know what's going to happen after that. So you can kind of see that the market is forecasting that three-month T-bill rate will come down, right? And there's a big disagreement right now between the stock and the bond market. But this this slide only makes rational sense if the market expects the Fed to cut soon and for three-month Treasury bill rates to fall from five and a quarter back down to one or 2%. Because otherwise, why would any rational person choose to get a 20% ride, to, uh, 20% volatile, uh, 20% up and down swings to get to more or less the same point as you can get a guaranteed return. So the only 
The only rat, the I think the best way to interpret this is the markets bet the Fed will be cutting, and that this picture is soon going to look like earlier pictures we saw. Now, as Mark talked about inflation earlier, if inflation hangs around and the Fed can't cut rates, the longer the rate stays high at the three-month T-bill rate, then that S&P 500 number is most likely going to have to get much higher in expected returns to induce investors. Because remember, as important as Griff's investment and his Roth IRA are, the, and mine and Mark's, they pale in comparison to pension plans and sovereign wealth funds around the world from Saudi Arabia to Norway. And for long-term investors with a lot of money, uh, there is no safer, greater place to put your money than the United States and particularly U.S. Treasury. So the longer that that three-bill most likely, and we'll revisit this these slides um, in the future, but if you were to look at 2024, five, six, seven, sometime over the next decade, either that three-month T-bill rate is going to come down quite a bit and or that S&P 500 bar is going to come up a lot. So the, the counterpoint to a young investor today uh, to, to combine your point, Griffin Marks, would be yes, you can you can take a little more volatility to get higher returns, but that's when Silicon Valley Bank gorged on 10-year U.S. government bonds, they did it because they could get 1.8%, which was a little higher than Treasury bills. But when the 10-year doubled to 3.6, it put the bank out of business. Sometimes being a little patient to let the markets reset. Like if, if like, let's say, Griff, you had a portion of your account in three-month Treasury bills earning almost the same as the S&P for the next decade. Well, when the S&P gets cheaper, if it does, you could then buy more stocks, right? So that's kind of the good argument, right? That's kind of the good argument. And this hasn't been true for 15 years and maybe it hasn't been true ever in the United States before. But even if you're a young person, there's an argument of having some treasury bills so you can buy the stocks, buy the stock market when they get cheaper, right? And then to Mark's point, it, even uh, even as an older investor, oh, sorry, I shouldn't use that word, but even as a more uh, <laughs> a, a mature investor, well, I guess I could say older. That's fine. If you're how about, an older, how investor, about a, how about seasoned investor? <laughs> if you're a seasoned investor, there's still an argument as long as you're following a good program, uh, maybe uses some trend following or an eye valuation, but there's still an argument to own some stocks and not take it to zero. Because as we've seen, the Fed and the government uh, is very reactive in the modern era. Anytime there's a crisis, whether it's within the financial system or from a pandemic or a foreign crisis, the Fed and the government tend to respond and try to help the market, which tends to bring rates down and bring risky assets up. So for seasoned investors, there's an argument to own some stocks. And for young investors, for the first time in my lifetime, there's an argument that actually owning some treasury bills can can boost your returns for for being opportunistic. So it's a it's a fascinating time. It's a, an we started with a complete aberration. We're now in another totally unique situation. And just to cap the conversation, this is the expect we we purposefully simplified the presentation to look at three month treasury bills and the S and P five hundred. Um, really, the three core assets you want to look at to understand the, the uh, U.S. financial markets is the three-month treasury bill, the 10-year bond, which is the most important benchmark rate in markets because it determines 
the mortgage rate on a home, your car financing loan. And, uh, and so the three-month treasury bill, the three, uh, the ten-year uh, yield rate, and then the stock market expected returns are the three assets you want that we look. Uh, the, the main three assets anyone should look at when looking at the state of U.S. financial markets. So this graph, guys, that shows three different shades of blue. Um, this is an internal graph created by Mulholland and Cooper Stock Asset Management. Um, the the light blue is where we were in 1231-2021 before the uh, before the Fed started raising interest rates. The the middle blue is at the end of last month, April 30th, 2023, and the dark blue is historical averages. So, um, and this goes back to the question I asked both of you guys on the previous slide. Historically, you uh, you've been able to get um, three points, and I should admit the 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 first three bars are treasury bills. The medium three bars are ten-year treasury bonds, and the bars on the right are the stock market. So, if we look just at the dark blue for a moment, historically you receive three point seven percent in three-month treasury bills, risk-free rate, compared to nine point six for the stock market. So, the historic historically investors have demanded 6% more per year to take on the risk of the stock market. We were just talking about 75 basis points or 0.75% more. Historically, investors have said, you better pay me 6% more, otherwise I don't want stocks, right? That's a pretty big swing, 6% to more or less 0.6%, right? And then on the 10-year treasury bond, just to introduce one more anomaly, Mark, what is the 10-year treasury today? Uh, today we are at, I'll tell you, the 10-year is, just have it here, 3.55%. <laughs> which is below, thank you, Mark, which is below the three-month treasury bill rate. And again, you see how strange that is. Historically, uh, if you look throughout all of American history and in the, in the financial markets, and this is pretty stable, whichever time period you pick, it's also true around the world. Uh, there's a wonderful book, Triumph of the Optimist. My dad always, for some reason, calls Revenge of the Optimist uh, by Elroy Demson and Marsh. Um, they update their findings every year, but um, the idea for this graph came from them. Uh, we just update it with our own figures. Uh, but what they showed is whether you're in Sweden or the United Kingdom or Japan or the United States, uh, this relationship of short-term government bonds paying about 4%, longer-term government bonds paying about 5 and the stock market paying about 10 These are pretty common averages found throughout history and around the world. So usually it's 4, 5, and 10. Today is 5, 3.5, and 6, right? So guys, that, that's pretty different than historical averages, right? No yeah. question about it. Stark differences. Stark differences. So Griff, what you said, Mark, what you said we think is right. Investors need to be uh, diversified, cautious, careful, have a good program, and be prepared that the future is going to look quite a bit different. It feels to me like we're very much in a transition period, and the markets are trying to figure out what the Fed's trying to do. And there's so many variables, like what's going to happen on inflation, uh, when is the economy, which is still doing pretty well, when is it, um, when is it going to react 
from the, the changes to the Fed funds rate that really just started happening last year. So when will car sales slow? Uh, the housing market is, um, we have a record number of apartments and homes being built right now, but for new permits to build homes, we have a cliff where that activity uh, is, is, is set to fall off a cliff. So it feels very much like a transition period. And I look forward to updating this with you guys. And for our listeners, um, my, my strong guess is that this is going to look pretty different in a year or two. Um, Griff, Mark, uh, any final comments about this graph or the presentation today? Um, I, I guess I just have one quick question. So like for the slides we were looking at before, I know those were the, and, and I guess for this one too, these are, these are the expected returns. How, like, I, I know like this time period that we're looking at, there was a lot of change and it was like pretty rapid. So was there, was there a large gap between like what was expected and what the actual returns turned out to be? Great question, Griff. And, and maybe we'll add that graph next time. Um, the beautiful thing on bonds is as long as you hold to maturity, your actual return is uh, 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 the coupon and, and what you paid. Uh, for those bonds. Um, for the stock market, the actual observed returns were uh, strikingly close to these expected returns. So it, it, um, I don't have the number in front of me, but if you bought stocks in 2008, uh, your actual return ended up being very close to this. And it was a great time to buy stocks in 08, 09, 10, 11, 12. Uh, people worried about different things, Europe, uh, fiscal cliff, but the, the returns from the stock market stayed great. Um, I will add a bit of a teaser, which is um, in the last seven, eight, nine years, stocks did a little bit better uh, than what the model would have forecast, right? We're talking something like two or 3% better per year. And in our experience, when the market does better than the model suggests, uh, the opposite happens in the future. You give some of that back. Or if the market undershoots the model, uh, that's extra, that those are extra returns investors can expect to receive in the future. So a great question. And if we, we'll add the graph next time, but if you looked at actual returns, they were strikingly close to the expected returns from the model. And that comes back to Mark's question. Um, the only way you can have a model have 85% or higher predictive power is for the ex post results to match very close to the ex ante prediction. So that's a great question. And the answer is that the returns came out very close to these expected returns. Okay, great, thank you. And, and, and I would just add that um, without without editorializing, you know, the situation that we're in now, trying to fight inflation with higher interest rates, um, we're, we're we're in the predicament, the situation, basically because of, of what the Fed did in 08 with great intentions, right? The nobody knew, everyone was worried about the markets at the time and the sure. economy. Right, but no one ever expected the, as you call it, see the short-term um, emergency action to last, you know, a decade or more. Yeah, um, yeah. or almost 15, 13, 14 years, anyways. Um, and now the Fed, we're, we're actually watching live to see how the Fed is is attempting to help cure the problem and fix the problem. We'll get a little better uh, understanding uh, this week. The date of this recording is we're, it's May one today, twenty twenty three. The Fed has a meeting this week, and we'll see what they do with interest rates. If they slow the rise, if they hold off, uh, I don't think anybody expects a cut, but I think consensus now is maybe a quarter of a point raise. Um, we'll find out this week to see how the Fed continues along this journey 
um, and how the markets react to that. Mark, you're always allowed to editorialize, and that was an excellent point. Thank you. I'll add that to my CV. <laughs> All right. Uh, a great conversation, guys. And for our listeners, um, as Mark pointed out, the Fed's meeting soon. We will certainly keep you up to date. Uh, and we will we'll, we'll, we'll at least add one graph per year as these expected returns change. You got it. Um, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, remember, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and any guests. Uh, nothing discussed today should be considered investment advice. And please consult your own financial advisor and tax advisor whenever considering any type of investment. If you have questions and you're one of our clients, please email us with the term podcast in the subject line. For more information about the podcast, the hosts, and our firm, please visit us at www.mk-am.com or email us at info at mk-am.com. Thank you for joining us today and look and listen for our next presentation in the very near future. Mm -hmm.